0: Well, please turn to Revelation 2, or you can follow along in your bulletins on uh, page 16. We're going to look at a a passage where Jesus rebukes the church for being too tolerant. And just that subject alone, I think, is a a great subject to analyze the American church as a whole and to uh, improve our prayer life uh, for that church. And today we're going to be focusing on the problem, next week on the solution, but we're going to read the the whole passage. And to the messenger of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, He who has the eyes like a flame of fire and the feet like fine brass. I know your works, the love, the faith, the service, and your endurance. In fact, your last works are greater than the first. Nevertheless, I have against you that you tolerate your wife Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my slaves to fornicate and to eat things offered to idols. I even gave her time so that she might repent, but she does not want to repent of her fornication. So I am throwing her into a sickbed and those adulterating with her into great affliction unless they repent of her works." and I will execute her children, and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to the rest of you who are in Thyatira, I say, to as many as do not hold this teaching, those who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Just hold fast what you have until I come. And as for the one who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. They will be smashed like clay pots, just as I have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our glory to study it, to implement it, And to be transformed by it. And we pray it would not just be us that would be transformed. But through our ministries we would be in a position to transform others. Teach our fingers, our spiritual fingers uh, to engage in spiritual battle. We pray for your anointing now upon me and my preaching. uh, That you would take this clay vessel and you would cause uh, the the light and the glories of uh, your word to shine forth. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, in the majority of uh, Greek manuscripts, verse 20 says, Nevertheless, I have against you, singular, that you, singular, tolerate your singular wife Jezebel. Now, that's different than the you, plural in verses uh, 23 and 24 he's later going to be addressing the rest of the leadership of the rest of the uh, church but in the verses the first verses here he is addressing the church through the moderator And the grammar of the greek of verses 18 and 20 are quite clear that the distinguished moderator of this presbytery has a wife and that this wife is such a problem but he compares her to the Old Testament woman Jezebel, who was the wife of Ahab. Now, anyone in the first century who was at all familiar with um, the the woman described in First Kings sixteen through Second Kings chapter nine would have a very, very strong impression immediately put upon their minds just by the use of this word, this name uh, Jezebel. When John alludes to the Old Testament, he wants us to import that Old Testament context uh, into the, the passage. Now, most commentaries I mentioned last time believe that this was a literal woman in the first century, but that her name was not literally Jezebel, that this was a symbolic name to immediately put an image, cast a picture into their minds of what this woman is like. Now, you may not have that uh, vivid image in your mind. So what I'm going to do, uh, first of all, is I'm going to um, try to disabuse you that she's just in general, you know, a bad woman or something like that. That may be a general impression that you, you have. I want to give you 15 character traits Uh, of modern Christian women who have been afflicted with the demonic spirit of Jezebel and I'm going to tie those in with the identical character traits that you discover in the Old Testament uh, passages in 1st and 2nd Kings. Now a lot of the case studies that I have uh, read through actually give a lot more character traits of this um, uh, characteristic, the spirit of uh, Jezebel. In fact, there were a couple that I think had around 30 characteristics that they outline. I'm just going to give the most obvious ones that jump out of the text of the Old Testament. And um, I'm going to summarize each one of these 15 points with one word. I've given you enough space under the introduction. You can put one or two words for each of these uh, points that I'm going to give to you. And the first word is control. Okay. The first and probably the most central characteristic of a Jezebel is the desire to be in control of her environment and of the people in her life now she may not think of herself as actually being uh, controlling but her insecurities uh, uh, drive her to try to control her environment it's a very strong drive now usually it's a behind-the-scenes drive but if given the opportunity, she will push for an ever-increasing say-so and in influence in the family in the church or whatever other organization that she happens to be a part of. But second, if she can't control you, she will either undermine you, so you can write in the word undermine, or attack you. Uh, so this point has two words, uh, undermine or attack. So her behavior can actually go from being very sweet, charming, and flattering to attacking, dominating, or manipulating. And people who have seen her sweet side, they have a hard time imagining that she could have a not-so-sweet side with those that she cannot uh, control. So everything goes well so long as you're doing things her way. And the Ahab-type men who are under her influence respect her. They depend upon her, whereas the Elijah-type men are frustrated with her and she is very frustrated uh, with them. She could not control Elijah, and when Elijah exposed her sins, she went on the attack and was so effective that even Elijah was intimidated and ran. <laughs> Elijah was so depressed over this whole situation, he was almost suicidal. The third characteristic is that these Jezebels lie, but they can never be convinced that they are lying. It seems like they really do believe their lies. The person with the Spirit can never see themselves as wrong, and they have an amazing capacity to prove their rightness in various situations, even though people, they know she's wrong. They know she's wrong, but with clever use of words and religious language and manipulation of other people and pointing out errors in your life. In fact, that's one of the things you could add to the 15. It's not maybe the most dominant, but you start pointing out sin in their life, Wow, she will go on the attack and point out sins and errors and things in your life and completely turns things around. So with these and other um, strategies, the spirit of Jezebel keeps the woman from seeing her wrong. It's like there is a veil of self-deception on her soul that um, uh, uh, makes her unaware of her sin and also that in turn enables her to convince others of the lies. Now it's not always outright lies. Many times it's simply misdirection. Now closely connected to this is a rationalization you can put the word rationalization down, of obvious error and even obvious sin. Now this passage mentions sexual sins that she has somehow justified but really it can be a rationalization of any sin. sin. There is um, only one verse in the Old Testament that mentions Jezebel's Uh, sexual sins, and that was on the mouth of Jehu. Some people wonder if she even had them. Probably uh, did, especially in light of what we're going to be seeing in this passage here. But sexual sin was actually not the dominant characteristic of that Jezebel. But these women, while clearly seeing the sins of others, cannot seem to see their own sin. Now speaking of sexuality and many of the case studies where this demonic spirit has been present, there actually wasn't any adultery, but there was almost always evidence of using sex to get her way with her husband. Sexuality was a tool of control. Now sometimes the tool could be used with others by way of flirtation or other devices, but I think you're gonna miss the point if you focus in on the on the sexual sins. She rationalizes error and obvious sin. That's the key point. A fifth characteristic is an uncanny ability to win arguments. In fact, the people who write in these case studies, they say it's almost like she's better than the best lawyers that are that are out there. You might think that you have won an argument resoundingly because the facts are on your side, but before you know it, she has turned everything around, and you analyze it later and you wonder, what in the world went on in that conversation? I still know she's in the wrong, but I'm the one who's apologized. I'm the one who's asked for forgiveness. How in the world did that happen? The Ahabs in her life are mystified at how she can always be right. She has an uncanny ability to win an argument. By the way, when you're looking in the Old Testament for these, these evidences, it's not just situations like um, the court case she brought against uh, what was it, Naboth. But any of her conversations with her husband, she is very convincing, even though it is obvious on the surface that she is wrong. And yet she has very, very convincing uh, arguments. Jezebel is very convincing, especially if the demonic spirit has gained a stronghold in the woman's life. Now, a sixth characteristic is that the spirit of Jezebel almost always seems to work through a woman. Now, there are a small minority of case studies where this uh, demonic spirit seems to work through a man rather than through a woman, but in the minority of cases of people out there who have uh, this Jezebel spirit, it's almost, always, uh, that it's almost always working through women. Seventh, like the Jezebel of the Old Testament who appears to have grown up in a, a very abusive and hypersexualized environment of her father F Baal, these women were often deeply wounded in their youth and so wounded is the word that you can write down there that's the seventh word now it could be a result of rejection in their youth or abandonment sexual abuse something else But she carries the scars of her youth. She just cannot seem to get past those scars. And the demon uses those scars to move her to control her environment. Controlling everything around her helps her to deal with her insecurities. Now, it's a very poor coping mechanism, but it is a coping mechanism that she uses. Initially, it starts in the flesh, and once there's no repentance, the demonic begins to capture this and use it more and more. But, um, by the way, I, I, you know, th- this can lead even to perfectionism in, in her, but I was going to say, by the way, don't just take one or two or three of these things and say, aha, there's a Jezebel manifestation there. Uh, it's really a, a package deal where all of these things are integrated together. And so you've got, uh, you've got the, uh, the insecurities leading to control, leading to all of these types of things wrapped up together. Okay, so the word wounded um, is, is that word. The eighth, these women are natural leaders. Uh, sometimes they lead covertly, other times uh, much more openly. It really depends on what's socially acceptable. But Jezebel usually led through her husband Ahab. And even the letters that she wrote, she wrote in the name of, uh, uh, of Ahab. So there is a camouflaging of her leadership, but she leads. However, unlike true leaders, Jezebel's do not lead as one who is under authority. Uh, Quite the contrary, she did not like to be led by others or to have true submission. um, While a Jezebel may profess to be in total submission to the leadership of the home, in fact, sometimes the case studies show going overboard and speaking about submission um, to the leadership, They're always leading behind the scenes. They wear the pants in the family, and despite their deficits, they manage to have a lot of loyal followers who simply cannot see her faults. They will defend her to the nth degree. And part of this is because Jezebels are natural leaders. Many, many times they're very, very gifted, and it is a shame that their gifts are not used in a godly way. Jealousy is the ninth characteristic, And the jealousy sometimes can be irrational. It's hard to make sense out of it and figure out why are they jealous. They can be jealous of compliments paid to their husbands, or they can be jealous if someone else in the church has been given more favor by a given leader, and you wonder, why would she care about that? But anything that might even remotely undermine her control or influence is jealously guarded against. She's jealous of anyone, like Elijah, who might exert a degree of control over the people that she is controlling. That bothers her a great deal. Now, I'm sure Ahab got a lot of backlash when he came home after that Mount Carmel incident. Remember, uh, he had all kinds of control over Ahab. Ahab didn't try to kill him. In fact, he ended up killing all of these prophets. And uh, I'm sure he heard about it. Ahab did. But certainly, there was backlash to Elijah. Elijah's control over Ahab was like almost unforgivable to Jezebel. Okay, tenth, just as Jezebel thought of herself as a prophetess, these modern women often think they clearly hear from God. They're so certain of what they think they've heard from God that even clear refutation from the Bible does not convince them. They know they're right even when they're wrong. Uh, Sometimes their hearing from God is clairvoyant. In other words, uh, the the, the demons give them premonitions or dreams or revelations that come true and it reinforces their sense that they're really being led by God and it reinforces uh, their, their using of that leading for control. But they definitely think they know God's will for the family, church, or whatever given situation they're involved in. And it all sounds very spiritual, but a word from the Lord... Can be a tool of manipulation. The Lord has guided me. It can be a tool of manipulation. And Jezebels use it with flair. Eleventh, they need Ahabs to affirm them. It takes an Ahab to let a Jezebel be effective, and an Ahab needs to repent of his enabling role before Jezebel can be delivered. Uh, from this demonic stronghold. Without Ahab's repentance, what happens is they just reinforce each other. Uh, what astonished me in one case study is the way all of the male leaders followed her without even realizing that they were following her. Um, they could be going in direction A, and it wouldn't even take very many words from her that uh, you know direction B is a better way, and they would be going in that direction, even if her arguments were not. Uh, very persuasive. Now as a result of this phenomenon you might assume that Ahab was not a strong leader and nothing could be further from the truth. Both the text of Scripture and the secular archaeology show that Ahab was an incredibly powerful leader, an incredibly gifted leader and modern Ahab show themselves to be very active leaders when they are not around her but to be passive followers in her presence. Now of course they carry out her will through their leadership and sometimes they even hate themselves that they are doing this and yet they keep doing it anyway. Why? Because there's a demonic influence and they've never been taught the principles of spiritual warfare that we're going to look at Lord willing next week in the second half of the passage. Twelfth, everyone who was dealt with the Jezebel spirit says that it is always a religious spirit that can operate quite easily uh, under the cover of Christianity or any other religion for that matter. They need to feel spiritual. Now in 1 Kings 18, verse 19, it says that 850 prophets ate at Jezebel's table, and she supported them. She was very generous with them. She loved being engaged in, quote-unquote, uh, the ministry. Okay, now if you had suggested that she was trying to manipulate she was controlling those prophets uh, she would no doubt have felt horribly misrepresented i'm serving them you know all i ever do is serve and give of myself and sacrifice and you have the audacity to say that i'm controlling them no this is very sacrificial what i am engaged in now these jezebels are very religious they may claim to pray more, give more, serve more, study the Bible more, know more about worship or other things than other people do. But it's clearly a religious spirit. It has all the earmarks of a religious spirit. And I gave an extended sermon in 2 Samuel on the characteristics of a religious ser- uh, um, spirit, so I'm not going to repeat those today. But it's important to realize that these demons are totally comfort- comfortable operating in a Christian environment until they get exposed, and then things get ugly, okay? Thirteenth, they tend to be narcissistic and have a hard time seeing things from their victim's perspective. Everything seems to revolve around them, even though the rhetoric is that of service. But I think every case study shows narcissism to be present. The world revolves around them. The husband's schedule revolves around their, their schedule. They get very frustrated when things don't go their way. And if you point out that what they're doing is very unreasonable, they just don't get it. They think it's the most obvious thing in the world that their husband ought to be at their beck and call, calling them at work, and everybody's schedule needs to accommodate hers. Fourteenth, though they manipulate others, they often play the victim. And in the process, the true victim of their games gets hurt even more. And sometimes they seem to really think that they are the victim who is being controlled, even though they are the controllers who victimize others. And so there is a projection of their own motives onto others. It's just a very, very odd phenomenon when you read about this. And then 15th, the families are often out of order while appearing to be very ordered and controlled, But the control is at the expense of the father's leadership. He may say he's leading, but the actual control in the home is one that is at least orchestrated by her. The children grow up eventually taking sides with the mom, having some of the same insecurities that she does, with some of the same confident bluster to cover those insecurities. And since the children have grown up being constantly manipulated and controlled all their lives, they tend to control and manipulate others as well. So Jezebels tend to produce more Jezebels, just like the Old Testament Jezebel produced Athaliah. Athaliah was identical. She had the spirit of Jezebel in her life, which was either the same demon or some other similar demon. Uh, but uh, that was uh, her daughter through, through Ahab. But um, anyway, that's as far as we're going to go today in this description of the Old Testament background that I think would have immediately popped into the mind of those uh, first century readers as soon as they saw the name Jezebel. Now here's the thing. In this passage, Jesus goes on to describe a woman who had incredible influence over that presbytery. She had influence, it says, over Christ's servants. And as we go through this passage, it's quite clear that Christ's servants are godly people, at least in most areas of their lives. And once we start describing what she is doing, you might wonder how any godly presbytery could tolerate such sin and rebellion. But the church of Thyatira describes to a T many churches that I am familiar with in America. I know of one Jezebel woman who gained enormous influence over the majority of the wives of elders as well as the elders and pastors themselves and it was astonishing to see her work and to see the passive elders and, 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 uh, and pastors who acted the part of Ahab, encouraged her, enabled her in her rebellious way. So how can a woman who manifests many of the Jezebel characteristics be considered an asset for the presbytery? That's the mystery. And as I've done research on the hundreds of case studies of the Jezebel spirit in evangelical churches today, which, by the way, I think this is one of the three biggest strongholds in the evangelical church is the Jezebel spirit. We could talk some other time about the other uh, strongholds. But as I've looked at those case studies, it dawned on me that I shouldn't be so hard on Thyatira. I used to really be down on them, just think this is ridiculous. Uh, Not anymore. And the reason is that it is much harder than you might think to expose and to discipline such a woman. She floats so easily among godly pastors and members and serves their needs so well that her worst sides are sometimes hidden for a long time. And she certainly has a lot of defenders. And I I should mention too, Thyatira was not a bad church. It was not. Let me reiterate. It was not a bad church. Now, in the in the New King James, the title that's given here is the corrupt church. But you know, in many ways, Thyatira was better than Ephesus, stronger than uh, than Ephesus. Now, it's true. Ephesus did not tolerate any doctrinal deviation, any. Any bad behavior, it says, I think, what is it? Verse 2, it says that they could not tolerate those who are evil. So they did not have the problem Thyatira did of an ungodly tolerance, but where Ephesus was strong on doctrine and holiness, they lacked love, right? Remember that? They lacked love. In contrast, Thyatira had love in spades. They had vibrant ministry. They had faith to expect great things from God. They had patience. They had a lot of good works, and verse 19 indicates. They had more ministries now than they had before. So in many ways, it was a phenomenal church. So the question comes again, how can an otherwise solid church have tolerated Jezebel for so long? And from the case histories, I'll tell you. almost anybody who has dealt and worked with this stronghold. And it is a deeply rooted stronghold that God's grace alone can tear down. So anybody that's worked with this demonic stronghold knows that the Jezebel spirit is extremely hard to pin down, to expose, and to deal with. The leaders are often the last ones to know about her faults, and a leader who prematurely tries to expose her will have severe backlash from her followers. It's a very tough stronghold to uncover. And male leaders who deal with this kind of a woman will be very easily made to look like they're chauvinistic and like they are insensitive. If they have even an ounce of self-preservation in their bodies, they're going to just leave her alone, Okay, like the church of Thyatira uh, left her alone. So with that as a background, let's quickly go through the first half of the passage verse by verse. Verse 18 says, and to the messenger of the church in Thyatira," right? So he's addressing the church leadership through the moderator, through the messenger of the presbytery. Remember each of these cities has multiple churches, not just one. And it's clear that Jesus holds the leadership accountable for failing to discipline Jezebel. And as the text moves on, it becomes clear that Jesus holds the rest of the leadership, the plural you, accountable for allowing this moderator to be a moderator. He's really not qualified for this office. Now, in many ways, he was a godly man. He appears to have had a genuine faith. He appears to have served the Lord selflessly, but he was afraid of his wife And he tolerated her sins. But the text goes on to show that what we cannot do in our own flesh, and you cannot take on this stronghold in your own flesh, is one of the big mistakes that, uh, as I've looked at these things and how I've failed in the past and how other churches and denominations have failed, I've realized. They've tried to argue. They've tried to use fleshly means. No, this is a battle that's only won in, in the, in, 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 through Jesus uh, working through us. So what we cannot achieve, next week we're going to be seeing Jesus can achieve working through us uh, if we will depend upon Christ in faith and if we will take action by faith. But there are hints of it even here in verse 18. Look at the amazing descriptions of Jesus who is the king of the church who exposes Jezebel just as God exposed the original Jezebel through the prophet Elijah. Verse 18 goes on to say, These things says the Son of God, He who has the eyes like a flame of fire and the feet like fine brass. Now commentators point out that when Jesus is being called the Son of God, it's the first reference to Psalm uh, 2, a psalm where Jesus declares war on all leadership that does not submit to Him. But interestingly, in verses 26 through 27, which is also a quotation from Psalm 2, he indicates that Jesus is only willing to fight when the church chooses to fight as well in the spiritual realm. Verses 26 through 27 refer to Psalm 2's rod of iron, and Jesus says, yes, he will wield that rod of iron. But how does he do it? He does it through overcomers. And I'll save my comments on Psalm 2's relationship to this subject for next week because it applies to politics, it applies to every area of life. But the reference to eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass point to chapter 1 of Revelation and verses 13 through 17 where Jesus has eyes that can see through every deception. He's got feet that show dominion that cannot be manipulated. And I'm not going to cover what we covered back then. But those who walk in the power of Christ are able to gain spiritual victory. And the victory is what we're going to be looking at next week, uh, Lord willing, in verses 24 through 29. Like Elijah, they too can be overcomers. Now, that does not mean that they're going to be free of any pain and suffering. And it does not mean that Jezebel cannot still wreak havoc upon them. Uh, She may. But we'll show how Jesus enables overcomers to be overcomers and not Ahabs. Now we've already dealt with verse 19 as well, a verse that describes a godly leader with godly leadership in many ways. It says, I know your works, the love, the faith, the service, and your endurance. In fact, your last works are greater than the first. In many ways, the husband of Jezebel was a good guy. He was a very respected guy in Presbytery, and it was another reason why it was hard to deal with his wife. But Jesus says, nevertheless, I have against you, and then he lists the the characteristics of this Jezebel spirit. To ever have Jesus say, I have this against you, ought to crush our spirits and bring us to repentance if we have that Ahab spirit, Uh, within us. Um, We should be desiring the well done from Christ more than the well done from man. We ought to desire his affirmations more than man's affirmations, in this case Jezebel's affirmations. And I'm sure the leadership there began to cringe as Jezebel's true character began to be exposed. She may have seemed good on many levels, but once Jesus is done giving his opinion, I I tell you, it narrows down the focus of what can be done. Now let me quickly outline a few more characteristics of this woman who had allowed a demonic stronghold into her life. There's going to be a little bit of overlap with the Old Testament descriptions. The first characteristic is that the Jezebel spirit is a religious spirit that is quite comfortable being in a Christian family being surrounded by a godly church. Now we already looked at that characteristic right under under the introduction. Well, verse 19 describes the spiritual environment in which she was operating. In fact, the godliness of her husband and of her friends can be a cover for this demonic stronghold that makes it much, much harder to expose. She surrounds herself with devotees who are godly. And this is probably the biggest reason why it's hard to deal with her. Second, her rebellion and control produce such intimidation in her husband that he preferred to tolerate her behavior rather than to confront her behavior. Now, he may have tried to confront her in the past and felt the negative impact of that. Uh, he, He was now ready to do anything rather than to get the backlash that would come from confronting her. Jesus says, I have against you that you tolerate your wife Jezebel. Notice that word, tolerate. That word seems to imply that this godly man didn't like what Jezebel did, okay? To tolerate something is not enjoying it at all. It's not like this guy was thrilled that the Jezebel spirit was at work in her life. He wasn't, but he knew that if he did the right thing, he would receive such backlash that he didn't think it was worth it. So he is enduring her behavior. He is tolerating her sin. Leaders shouldn't do that. Husbands who ignore the sins of their wives are failing to wash them with the water of the word as Ephesians 6 commands us to do. They're failing to shepherd their wives. And these, these Ahabs will say, yeah, right, you try it. If I ever try something like that, I will get such punishment. Uh, it will not be worth it. It'll be ugly for me. Now here's the problem. Self-preservation is not the calling of a leader. We are called to die to self and to serve our families and part of that service is loving your wife enough to lead her even when she does not want to be led. Okay, notice I said lovingly. We do not excuse harsh, insensitive, and domineering leadership. Do not take this exposition of the Jezebel spirit as an excuse for chauvinism. Or immaturity. But there's another interesting aspect of the word tolerate if you look it up in the dictionary. The, the dictionary says that in addition to the idea of toleration, is the idea that the person is leaving the problem for someone else to deal with. The Greek word, aphiemi, shows that this guy is really hoping somebody else is going to do something about Jezebel. There's a passivity in leadership that shows an Ahab like quality. And another, by the way, secular history says that Ahab was an incredibly competent leader. Uh, He just couldn't lead his wife. So don't think that Ahabs are softies, pushovers, non-leaders, or cowards. They are not. They just do not think it is worth confronting their wives. They're intimidated by their wives. And I believe on many levels it is an irrational intimidation that they cannot explain because it's been demonically uh, engendered. It's a demonically engendered fear and intimidation. But true leaders must be willing to receive the backlash of graciously and lovingly pointing out sin. Keep in mind, you are not in this by yourself. We're going to focus on the work of Christ next week that can only be accessed by prayer, but even the first half of this passage shows that even though you cannot expose error on your own, the one whose eyes are flames of fire can expose it. Even though you cannot take leadership in your own strength, you cannot take dominion in your own strength, the one whose feet are solid brass can, and his dominion is unshakable, and it is unbreakable. The key is a Christ-centeredness in our walk as leaders, and I hope to draw that out more next week. Please pray that I'd have wisdom to develop the second half of, uh, of the passage effectively. We'll see in verses 24 through 29 that Jesus can reward leaders who attempt to do the impossible with impossible results. I love the second half of the description of the church of Thyatira. Now, also keep in mind that Jesus knew that Jezebel could repent. He gave her time to repent. Now, to me, this implies she may well have been a genuine believer. In fact we're going to see that even after Jesus will in the near future punish her throw her into that sickbed he'll wait again for repentance but the leadership was short circuiting the process of repentance through their cowardice and through their enabling and so this husband was not doing his wife any favors by tolerating her behavior the next characteristics already been developed Uh, This spirit uh, usually works through women, uh, though not always. Now, some people uh, have said that it's really the same exact demonic spirit was working in Jezebel as was working in Ahab. That may be, I've tried to ferret that out. I I can't settle that question exegetically, so I'm not sure. But certainly, when you look at these 30-some characteristics of Jezebel, even though there's a tiny minority of exceptions, almost always it's through a woman. But verse 20 gives another characteristic. Verse 20 goes on to say of Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Now since this was before the time of the cessation of prophecy, she could call herself a prophetess and get away with it. Now later on in this book, John is going to very clearly say that the gift of prophecy will forever cease after the destruction of Jerusalem, but here she calls herself a prophetess, no doubt because she has been hearing from demons. Most modern Jezebels have dreams, visions, clear guidance, and or are very confident in telling the family they know what God's will is. And it's pretty hard to argue with that. I mean, if they say, hey, God told me... (laughs) Are you going to argue against God? How do, you, how do you deal with that? Well, you deal with it by saying, you know, the Bible is the only infallible source of revelation that we have right now. And the Bible says this. And she says, no, 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 God, let me, you need to be in submission to God. And you say, no, the Bible is the only infallible source of revelation. And here's what the Bible says. You keep pointing her to the Word of God, and maybe the Holy Spirit in time will help her to realize, no, these revelations must not be coming from God. Be ever so cautious when you hear people tell you that they have heard a word of the Lord for you, or a prophecy for you, or that God has given you guidance about what you should do, okay? Number one, that's not the way guidance works. God does give us guidance, you know, for our, for our own lives, and that guidance is not normative for you or for anyone. Only the Bible is normative. So if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, the Lord revealed to me that you need to be my wife which by the way has happened a number of times. I can document, that's happened a number of times. Very manipulative. Lord's revealed that you need to be my wife. Man, you're not willing to do it. You need to be in submission to God. You're in rebellion against God. Uh, Your response could be, yeah, well, when the Lord reveals the same to me, I'll get back with you. (laughs) Uh, You don't need to argue, but um, be very, very cautious about this. A word from the Lord can be used in a way of manipulation. God's given me guidance can be used by way of manipulation. I'm not denying that God gives guidance or even dreams and visions, but it's not normative. That's the clear thing that I'm wanting to teach. The Bible alone is normative, but these Jezebels do get guidance from demons, and they are so certain that the guidance is from the Lord that they cannot be shaken of their conviction, even with the clearest exposition from the Bible that what they are saying is wrong. They just know it is from the Lord. Now, I don't question their sincerity, but I do recognize the way that guidance and leading from the Lord can be used as a f- tool of manipulation. Now, the Jezebel spirit, if you, if you read the document, uh, the, the, the case histories, it is rife in the charismatic circles, but it's in non-charismatic circles too. It just uses different language. okay? But it, it's some of the same manifestations. Next, this Jezebel woman teaches men. Verse 20 says that she teaches my slaves, and the word slave is in the masculine. Of course, the Apostle Paul forbids women from teaching men. So it's a turning of male-female roles upside down. Now, she may do it in a way that's a little bit more subtle. She may just copy things off the web and say, Husband, you need to read this. This is, this is the truth. And she'll copy more things, and, and, and yet she's driven to teach and to convince men. The next description is that she deceives. Uh, the Greek word planao means to wander or to mislead. Now, it doesn't have to be necessarily an outright lie. Usually, it's a leading into error by very spiritual-sounding reasons. Now, I've already dealt with that deception of this veil uh, that kind of uh, tends to blind her. And the demon also convincingly uh, deceives uh, other or her devotees. Next, she seeks to influence and be around godly leaders. I want you to notice that these are not tares that she has deceived. Jesus says she deceives my slaves, my bond slaves, my servants. The more godly the man, the more she will work to get into his good graces. She wants to influence, but she must first gain the friendship of these leaders and gain their trust. The next characteristic is that she has antinomian tendencies. Uh, she used both teaching and misdirection to cause Christ's servants, it says here, to fornicate and to eat things offered to idols. And you might think, really? Christ's servants, Christ's own servants, are going to tolerate fornication, be engaged in fornication? Yes. And you don't have to just look at the scandals that are rocking the megachurches, you know, with um, multiple cases of of adultery and pornography and in a couple of situations even pedophilia. Um, Think of the idolatrous steps that led to these downfalls. And they have biblical reasons for them. Actually, let me illustrate it with the second part of the clause. If you were to pick up your average evangelical book that discusses Paul's teaching on eating things offered to idols in 1 Corinthians, you would discover these evangelical books say that so long as you aren't causing other people to stumble, it's okay to eat things offered to idols. Okay? So um, the majority of modern commentators completely miss the logic of Paul And they say that eating food offered to idols is not a problem so long as you are not personally convicted it's a sin and so long as those who think it's a sin aren't being pressured to stumble, to fall into that themselves. They say it's perfectly okay. But here's the point. Paul does not contradict the Apostle John here. Eating things offered to idols is a sin. It's always been a sin. It was a sin in Leviticus. So why would people, godly evangelicals, Get this, well, Peter said Paul wrote some things that are kind of hard to understand, right? And one of the ways of Paul's logic is to deal with one topic in this chapter, uh, actually deal, bring up both topics, but deal with half of the topic here, and then in another chapter he will deal with the other one. So, uh, just to use a ludicrous example, if Paul were to say, um, I don't want you speeding through red lights, he's not saying, so long as you go to the speed limit, it's okay to run through a red light. And yet that's the way that the commentators really are interpreting a lot of these passages. Uh, uh, they, they use, um, they, they miss the logic, and they think because Paul has said, don't speed through, you know, stoplights uh, o- over here, that, like, don't, um, you know, prophesy with your head uncovered, then they assume, oh, it's okay for women to prophesy in church if their heads are covered. And anyway, you go through the logic of Paul and you see that he deals with the speeding over here, he deals with the Speeding and headlights, uh, stoplights. Okay, the stoplight's over here, and you've got to look at both passages to get the whole conclusion and to realize it completely reconciles with Leviticus, completely reconciles with John uh, here in this passage. Now, I just bring that up not because that's an issue that we face. We don't eat things offered to idols, uh, but it just shows it's very easy to misinterpret the Apostle Paul. And there's a number of commentaries say, Maybe Jezebel was reading 1 Corinthians and said, hey, Paul says it's okay to eat things offered to idols. And uh, that, that, that could very well be. Now let's go to the fornication, because that's the one that's a little bit more troublesome. And yet it's the same logic. You don't have to look very far in evangelical literature to see fornication justified in the name of the Bible. Read what most evangelical scholars say about sexual self-gratification, the M word, that does not involve the wife in any way, and you will see that they justify it. They justify solo sex. That is fornication on a massive scale being justified from the Bible. Read what most evangelical movie critics say about watching movies that have steamy sex scenes. You'll see that they justify it. Even Francis Schaefer justified it. He's a great guy, wonderful guy. He's wrong on that. Read what most evangelical books say about courtship and romance, and you will see that they justify fornication on some level or another. And they've got good arguments. I've read their arguments, very persuasive arguments, but they're wrong. Read the testimonies of pastors who have fallen into adultery, going all the way, and read how they biblically justified and rationalized the early stages of being alone with these women and the hugs, and the kisses, and the M-word that uh, that followed. Don't think that this is something that just happens in Thyatira. I had a pastor friend who used Scripture to justify sexual spanking, bondage, and pornography in marriage. He quoted 1 Corinthians 7.34, which says that a woman needs to know, quote, how she may please her husband. And verse 33, which says a husband needs to know, quote, how he may please his wife. And he says, hey, when it's her turn, I do what pleases her. When it's my turn, she does what pleases me, and anything goes. And I said, no, the Scripture has got to define those terms. And he said, no, Paul said, I define those terms. It's what pleases me. And so he used this to justify uh, the abominations of of, uh, bondage, filthy practices, pornography, because he said, that's what pleases me. That was an evangelical pastor that I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Thyatira is alive and well today. One pastor told me in all sincerity that 1 Corinthians 7.36 describes premarital sex as not the ideal, but as permissible. Taking that verse out of context, he read, quote, but if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, dot, 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 let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, dot, dot, dot. And he said, yes, I understand that the very next verse says that it's not the ideal, That if you can control your willpower, you should do so. But if you can't and you're overwhelmed by uh, these sexual desires, it's not a sin to sleep with your girlfriend. Well, that is such a gross misinterpretation of the passage. It's not even talking about a boy and a girl. It's talking about a father with his virgin daughter as to whether he has the authority to give her in marriage, not give her in marriage. And yet these kinds of interpretations are rife. They're having influence all over America. And so even apart from the Jezebel spirit, these things are common. Don't think this cannot happen in good churches that have good ministries. They are happening all across America with good churches, godly people, who have uh, great ministries. Well, in the same way, the Jezebel spirit will misdirect people with her teaching so that it may not outrightly promote sin, but will indirectly promote sin. They may justify unbiblical divorce, or feminism, or socialism, or other clear errors. They may justify denying their husbands for months at a time. As mentioned earlier, she will often use sex to manipulate her husband, which is a gross perversion of that sacred expression of love. Now, the same phrase on idolatry shows that she will blur the lines between idolatry and godliness. You've probably seen some of the teachers out there on the Internet who teach as if the Bible is all about you and your comfort and your success. You maybe saw the video clip of uh, uh, Victoria Osteen, idolatrous comments about God being devoted to my self-esteem and my happiness. It's like she has turned the first catechism upside down to say that God's chief end is to make me happy, rather than my chief end being to glorify God and to enjoy Him, not a God in my own image, but to enjoy Him, the Lord of the universe, the God of all holiness. But her words were a clever misdirection that used Scripture to teach the exact opposite of Scripture. Instead of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, she teaches that God is here for our fulfillment, our comfort, our joy, our everything. And it's no wonder to me that today's Jezebel protégés are falling into fornication just as the devotees of the woman in Revelation did. It is the natural trajectory of the success ch- syndrome. And perhaps I should give you just a little bit background of why I even bring up the success syndrome. Commentators point out that Thyatira was a business town that was very, very wealthy, but it was a closed shop union, so to speak. It was illegal to have a business of any sort without it belonging to a trade guild. Now, the problem was that the trade guilds um, had mandatory meetings that would begin with things offered to idols, would have a business meeting, would have a... Uh, a a boisterous party afterwards with scantily clad uh, dancers and sometimes leading uh, to fornication. And to be a success, you had to participate in the guild meetings. It was illegal not to do so. So Jezebel, no doubt, was encouraging these people that God does not expect you to lose your jobs God does not expect you to be poor or to starve to death. Rather, our God has commanded us to reach out to the world and get involved. So it's likely the kind of thinking that Jezebel was promoting. God wants you to be a success in business so you can have an influence. One commentary gave the following imaginary dialogue that she may have had. So perhaps she reasoned, God will know and understand. What better way could we have to reach these heathens than by associating with them in their worship. Come, let's not be so negative in our appeal to these poor lost souls, but rather let us join them in their services, and the doors of opportunity will be readily opened to teach them the truth and save their souls. Another characteristic is that this Jezebel cannot see herself as wrong. Now Jesus had somehow contacted her, perhaps through a true prophet, to call her to repentance verse 21 says i even gave her time so that she might repent but she does not want to repent of her fornication so obviously this is not the first time that jesus has contacted her one writer commented on this phrase saying there is a maturation process in the jezebel syndrome because it is an addiction to power or control if confronted early on there is more hope for repentance If it is fully matured and well-entrenched, Jezebels typically refuse to see this about themselves, and without acknowledgment, there is no repentance. Jezebels often lack true repentance, which is confession and willingness for God to change what is revealed. In Thyatira, Jezebel was given time to repent, but she would not. Now, one last characteristic requires us to skip ahead to verse 24 where Jesus speaks of those who had not known the depths of Satan, implying that Jezebel and her devotees had known the depths of Satan. She had gone about as far into being controlled by satanic influence as a believer could go, yet she appears to have been oblivious to the fact that she was demonized. This Jezebel behavior had become too well entrenched. It had become a stronghold. Now next week I'd like to deal with the steps that can be taken in a church that has the Jezebel spirit manifesting himself. They are not steps we can do in our own strength. This is spiritual warfare and we must depend upon the spirit of God himself to deal with Jezebel. But Lord willing, I want to show how the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for the tearing down of strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. The spirit of Jezebel is in the capital of the state. The spirit of Jezebel is in Washington, D.C. But the Christ who bears the rod of iron in verses 26 through 27 can expose it. He can overturn it. But he does so not through carnal weapons, does he? He does so through spiritual weapons, spiritual means through his people, but it requires a close walk with Christ and the power of the spirit. So if we start to have the spirit of Ahab we may very well start experiencing the spirit of Jezebel influencing us. And I believe, I am 100% convinced, in fact, this was an eye-opener. Re- researching this thing, it just blew me away when I started looking at the political realm. I'm convinced a lot of Christian male politicians have the spirit of Ahab written all over them. I don't think it deals in revelation of the spirit of Ahab, but I dealt with that in, in, in Samuel. And until they start repenting of that and they start uh, opposing the feminism and the Jezebel spirits that are around them, there's just going to be this constant feeding and reinforcing of each other in, in the political realm. So Ahab's need to repent. Jezebel's need to repent early and often. And if you see even the beginnings of the Jezebel spirit being true in your life, repent and resist those urgings by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I would also end by encouraging us to pray that we would have the best features of both Ephesus and Thyatira. Ephesus was incredibly strong doctrinally and in terms of holiness, but Thyatira was strong on love and faith and service and endurance. And if Jesus would unite the strong characteristics of those two churches in the Church of America, think how strong it would be. May the Lord do it once again. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it steps on our toes. We thank you for your word, Father, even when it exposes how deeply entrenched uh, the strongholds are in politics and all around us. But rather than getting discouraged and depressed uh, like Elijah did, we pray that we would heed the words that you spoke to Elijah, that we would get up, move on, continue with our ministry and trust you with the results, but that we would not war with carnal weapons but we would war with the spiritual weapons that are indeed mighty in you and so we come to you Lord and we thank you that you do instruct us and I pray that you would give us the courage to uh, bless our families uh, in every way that we can to not tear down but to build up to not engage in uh, carnal ways of dealing with our securities but to go to the healing waters Uh, of your Holy Spirit, to not drink from broken cisterns, but to drink uh, to our full satisfaction from the rivers of delights and pleasures that flow from your throne. Do bless this, your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.